Che, it's Evil Jeff. Listening to episode 75 of DM's Diary. You had just gotten through the part of the different uh, styles that you're emulating or uh, grabbing onto to play the Gygaxian, Arnasonian, yada, yada, yada. So, when are we going to get the Webster style? Sounds like this needs to be a fusion of it. You know, claim what you like out of it. Call it your style. Own it. That's what I would do. If you say the real life ends up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue. Good question, Evil Jeff. When are we going to hear about Webster's style? It's actually a little more complex, at least in my head, than it might at first seem. What do I want for my fantasy roleplaying games? There are three basic elements that I need to consider, and today I want to explore what is for me the most important of all, the world. As I mentioned in the last episode, I suspect that I am a little unusual because I consider the world to be more important than the rules or the methods of play. To me, the methods are how we create the kind of experience of play that we want to have at the table, while the rules are about how we adjudicate the decisions made by the players within the game. Without a world, well, for me, the game is just an empty shell. The world is the substance. The world and the exploration of that world are the whole point. But I have come to recognise that in this, I am probably in the minority. Reading the GM advice of the more well-known and popular game designers, it's easy to see that for many players and GMs, the world is a simple backdrop to the action of the story. For me, the story is an emergent property of this game, which itself is created through the interplay of the world, the methods and the rules. And perhaps in this, I am completely wrong. But, well... Evil Jeff asked the question, and if I'm going to offer an authentic experience as a game master, an experience that expresses my philosophy of role-playing games, my tastes and my ways of thinking, if it's going to be authentic, then it's going to start with a deeply considered world. This is Season 9, Episode 5, Finding My Blend, Fantastic Worlds. Let's start at the beginning and consider why, as I got into role-playing games, I grew to believe that the worlds of fantasy within which we imagined these games to be taking place became the most important element of the game. I began playing when my friend Daniel introduced me to the 1977 Traveller box set. Traveller had no default world, but it opened with the assumption that the referee would need to create one within which to play. In that game, 
the referee randomly generated worlds collected within a small area of chartered space referred to as a subsector. Practically, this was an 8 hex by 10 hex minimap within which random die throws generated a series of star systems. From there, the referee generated main worlds around those stars and drilled down into creating adventures upon those worlds, upon which the characters, also created through the minigame of character creation, would face whatever challenges were devised. It was an interplay between the ingenuity and creativity of the referee, the random process of generation offered by the Traveller Games method, and the eventual decisions of the players. Those decisions, in turn, met the rules of play for adjudication. My point is that Traveller began with characters generated by the players and worlds generated and populated by the referee. The first game I owned was the one I stole from my dad, RuneQuest. This game sketched out the world of Glorantha. It was a slightly different flavour of fantasy from Dungeons & Dragons, but not immensely so in the pages of RuneQuest 2nd Edition box set. There was a different way of doing magic, more visceral and less abstracted combat, and interesting creatures. More than anything, however, the box and book cover plus the map of Dragon Pass made the biggest impression upon me. I wanted to visit that world and explore it, and I still do. We played Dungeons and Dragons, of course. What fascinated me most, however, were the worlds of Kryn and the Forgotten Realms, and I mean the incarnation of those worlds first expressed by TSR in the Dragonlance modules and the first box set of the Forgotten Realms, respectively. Again, it was the maps that hooked me, then the artwork, then the places and people, and I was drawn in. When we played Rollmaster, it was in the world of Iron Crown's Middle-earth. I was drawn into the maps of Middle-earth, and I must confess that I had not read The Lord of the Rings until I saw those maps, despite my dad trying to push The Hobbit and that larger tome upon me. Actually, the first stories I read and enjoyed were The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but that's another subplot in the tale of my hobby. Rollmaster was played in Middle-earth. Most memorable was Moria, wherein Goriel Swiftfoot met the Balrog, but I was poring over maps of the other places of Middle-earth all through the later years. Palladium fantasy role-playing drew me in with a rich world as well. The Palladium world still gets me excited, the map especially, and then some of the art, and the magical sigils in the main rulebook. I don't think I would play Palladium's rules nowadays, but I would love to play in the world. Star Frontiers, that hooked me too. The images of alien dralocytes and Vrusk particularly caught my attention. The treacherous Sathar, and the frontier upon which the game was set. This is what drew me in. Do you see the pattern? I was attracted to the worlds of fantasy and science fantasy that are on offer in role-playing games, and I still am, and for me, it's this that excites me the most. What I want to do is explore worlds of fantasy, and that might not need be a strict genre label either. I am as intrigued by Monty Cook's Numenera as I am with Middle Earth. But when I look at what I buy, the stuff that excites me offers a world of adventure, not in the abstract sense, but in terms of a specific realm. Traveller 1977 didn't offer that world, but by 1981 the third Imperium was being published and it definitely drew me in. Dungeons and Dragons, when I bought the red box in 1983 and read the expert rules, 
although I actually bought the 1981 expert box without realising it was from a different set, this opened me up to the world that would eventually become Mistara. And there is a clue here as to why when I recently bought the Swords and Wizardry box set I was left a little cold. When I read the original Dungeons and Dragons, of which I thought Swords and Wizardry was meant to be a retro clone, I was fascinated by the example map of the dungeon and the implied underground world, but I found little to inspire me beyond rules and codified monster stats in the new box set. And I say this not to bash Swords and Wizardry, for it is a fine set of rules and very popular indeed, but I guess to illustrate that the worlds are what grab me and keep me engaged with role-playing games. But then, some worlds have lost me. The Forgotten Realms is the best example of this. It became sprawling and bigger, and it now includes, well, everything. Every monster, every character race, every character class, in a huge melange that lacks any real distinctiveness at all. Glorantha still fascinates me, but my recent foray there left me feeling inadequate to the task of learning it all, and being competent with running it. My hope was crushed by the minutiae. I am of the view that perhaps I should be a player, not a GM, there. And that expresses the dual problem that I face in my desire to explore new worlds. On the one hand, many excellent worlds exist that I want to explore, but I am intimidated by learning all the details needed to present them. And on the other hand, the task of creating a world with the desired level of detail and interest that I would deem worthy of play, well, that seems daunting. And so, here I am, in need of fantastic worlds, but not sure how to reach them. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit more today. How can I make my fantasy gaming approachable while satisfying this desire for a rich world to explore? I think there are three possible approaches for me. One, I can build my own fantastic world or worlds. Two, I can visit an existing published world, but pare it down to a manageable start. Three, I can indulge in some solo exploration of a world through play, but without the pressure of player expectation. I guess I could also become a player in a game in a world that I enjoy, but as far as I know, no one in my circle is running an accessible game in the worlds that I'm interested in. So, number one. As daunting as it sounds, I can take steps towards building and exploring my own fantasy worlds, and that is what I've been doing over the past couple of months, here and there. Next episode I aim to talk about the game I am running right now in Mistamir, a realm I created back in 2016 and which even has some published products out there on sale, but let's save that for next time. I have also been building my own old-school-inspired fantasy world based on the tools created by Castle Old Skull. That basically involves making a very large hex map and working down into creating a small area for play. As this is not needed for anything specific anytime soon, it's a very slow-burning project. Oddly, perhaps, the main purpose has turned out to be helping me decide what I don't want in my game world. As Evil Jeff alluded to in his call at the top of the show, I have long been influenced by the Arneson Gygax flavour of early D&D, but it's also deeper than that, because an even bigger pair of influences are Steve Perrin, who wrote RuneQuest 2 along with Ray Turney, and Dave Hargrave, the creator of the world of Arduin. 
What I'm looking for is a blend of kind of grounded, low-powered fantasy with elements of amazing technology and gloriously improbable magic. And perhaps that blend is something that I am still seeking to, well, blend. On top of the fantasy world, I've, I've also been allowing myself to imagine a couple of science fiction worlds. One is a supernatural conspiracy weirdness alternate reality world, and the other is a variation of military SF and espionage in the far future, but the latter one owes rather a lot to another SF universe. Which brings me on to number two. Visiting an existing world, but paring it down to a manageable start. I picked this tip up from the Alexandrian in his recent YouTube video about running games in published worlds. In short, Justin Alexander points out that every world has its underdeveloped and thinly sketched areas. Pick one of those, somewhere with minimal or less lore at least to worry about, and start your game there. It's a good tip and it's one I've been taking to heart. I'd also add that it can be helpful to work with players who similarly don't know the world so you can avoid the big problem I experienced when I tried to run RuneQuest Glorantha. My world knowledge was worse than that of the players and ultimately I just felt intimidated out of playing. Number three. I have been exploring worlds through solo play and I'm doing this right now with the Traveller 3rd Imperium. I've taken a leaf from the Alexandrian's book here too. I, I picked up a lesser defined and more sparsely drawn sector of chartered space and I just basically began to play there. The advantage is that I can enjoy some play and also begin to explore the world, or the universe in this case. And I can do that alone, perhaps in anticipation of developing my knowledge enough to run it for a group, maybe later in my life. There is one final thing that I'd like to mention about worlds though, and it's an idea I read in an online article by Monty Cook. And it's the idea of cognitive distance. Cognitive distance is the gap between the player's own real-life experience of the apparently real world and the experience of the player character in the game world. Put another way, cognitive distance is the gap between what the characters are doing and what you, as a player, know how to do. The distance is lessened by any form of familiarity, real or imagined. Monty Cook suggests that the popularity of D&D fantasy is because most people in Western European and American culture are familiar with the popular tropes of fantasy worlds. Wizards, knights, orcs, castles, dragons, magic rings, all that stuff is part of what we teachers sometimes call our cultural capital, the shared knowledge and riches of the wider culture within which we live. Cook suggests that this is why science fiction gaming is less popular and why, even then, the most popular science fiction games are actually pulp science fantasy, such as Star Wars. Science is actually hard. Unless you are a scientist or an engineer, hard SF, well, it's hard in the sense of being difficult to grok. The same happens with any world that isn't drawing heavily on the big tropes of popular culture. Most people can understand or relate to superhero games that feel like Marvel or DC Comics. Many of us can handle big universes like Star Trek and Star Wars, but we would be perhaps stuffed 
if we were playing in a world about firefighters in a deeply grounded and realistic emergency scenario or playing paramedics in an apocalypse happening world just as much as I would struggle with court fantasy in an authentic Asian culture to name just one example why because that's not anything like my real life experience Cognitive distance is a problem every time I pitch a game idea in loose terms. That supernatural conspiracy weirdness alternate reality game I mentioned earlier, that leaves players asking, what would that be like? In my head, it's like the modern world with small doses of weirdness and the supernatural in it, but that doesn't mean much until you play it, and I can't get anyone to play it, so I end up using a shorthand. You know, it's like the X-Files meets Harry Dresden with portals to alternative realities. Yeah. And that's why I think Monty Cook is right in this. Most people play in generic fantasy land, or the pulpish imagined 1920s of Cthulhu, or the staid tropes of big intellectual properties like Star Wars. These are familiar, and there is less cognitive distance. If you want to do something else, you've got to do better than I have been doing at bridging the cognitive gap. So wrapping this all up and to answer Evil Jeff's question, I am still finding my blend. The biggest piece of the puzzle for me is the world the game is set within. And I know most other gamers don't give as much of a crap about the world as I do, but for me, as a GM, it's vitally important I choose worlds that I enjoy. And I am starting to believe that instead of mentioning those worlds by name and inviting all the baggage that players might bring along, it might be best not to name the worlds or universes I am borrowing at all. Just choose a small backwater area and focus on presenting it descriptively, in-game and incrementally through play. Fiddle with it as much as you want to make it your own. And if people notice, well, yes, you can say you've borrowed stuff from whichever world it is that you're actually running. That way, when you say your version of the world may vary, you can genuinely, hand on heart, know that you meant it. So thanks, Evil Jeff, for calling in and asking a question that inspired this episode. I hope my answer goes at least partway to addressing it. That's it for another episode of Roleplay Rescue. If you enjoyed the show and you want to support the podcast, there are a whole host of things that you could do. Most helpful of all, you could leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you are using, and that will help to raise our profile. Alternatively, you could follow me on Twitter at UbiquitousRat and like or retweet episode announcements. And thanks to everyone who's doing that already. If you're on MeWe, you can look me up and connect, or you can find the Roleplay Rescue page and follow. Again, emojiing or resharing episode announcement, that's really helpful. And there's also a private Roleplay Rescue group that you can join if you want to discuss stuff off-air. If you have comments, you could drop me a call in via anchor.fm slash rpgrescue, or email me your sound recording directly to hello at rpgrescue.com. If you're looking for more Roleplay Rescue, check out the blog at roleplayrescue.com where I randomly post quick thoughts and gaming stuff as the whim takes me. 
If you want to buy me a digital coffee by way of thanks, why not drop by ko-fi.com slash cwebster. And finally, if you want to support the show with a little pocket change on a regular basis, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thank you once again to all my current patrons for their patient and long-standing support. Links to all of these places can be found in the show notes. And thanks, of course, must go to TJ Drennan for the main theme music and all of the stingers. Thanks to Anchor for airing and distributing the podcast to a huge range of podcasting services. And thanks to you, the listener, for lending me your ears. That's it until next time. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on. (laughs) 